Welcome to the Iditapod, a podcast about what else? The Iditarod, a production of Alaska Public Media and KNOM Radio in Nome. I'm your host, Josh Edge. Mitch CV maintained his lead yesterday, beating the next closest team to White Mountain by two hours overnight. And now he's making the final push to Nome. But before we get too far into today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Alaska Pipeline Service Company, celebrating 40 years of fueling the 49th state, is proud to support Iditarod coverage on Alaska Public Media. Mitch clocked into White Mountain at 11.36 p.m. yesterday, followed about two hours later by his son Dallas Seavey and then Nicholas Petit. Mitch left the checkpoint at 7.36 this morning. Mushers are eligible to leave White Mountain after a mandatory eight-hour rest. Uh, Just a reminder, we are in the middle of producing our daily episodes, which we will keep pushing out until the end of the race. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or listen on alaskapublic.org. KNOM Radio's Ben Matheson and Alaska Public Media's Zachariah Hughes are out on the trail still, keeping an eye on what has the potential to be an extremely early finish to this race. Some estimates out there put the first musher under the burled arch in Nome as early as 5 p.m. today. Others say it could be 7. Either way, this, as we keep saying, could be a record-setting finish. Of course, that also assumes nothing goes wrong. And as we've seen in past races, there's a lot that can go wrong in these last 77 miles to the finish line. Anything from stubborn dogs to disorienting storms and a whole plethora of things in between. Now, since reaching the Bering Sea coast on Sunday, teams have slashed rest and put on their fast footwear to surge north across the sea ice of Norton Sound and then swing west across the hills of the Seward Peninsula. Ben says the race leader, Mitch Seavey, is pretty firmly in the driver's seat of the race at this point, but there is still a lot of racing to be had. Two-time champion Mitch Seavey is 77 miles away from his third title church bells made it official as he pulled into White Mountain shortly before midnight. CV arrived with a nearly two-hour advantage over the next team in, his son Dallas CV. All racers must complete the final eight hours of rest here before pulling the snowhook and heading overland past the Topcock Hills to Safety Sound and on to the finish line. After coming off the Yukon River, CV has tailored his schedule to set his team up to post the fastest run times and critically, to protect the linchpin of his success, reliable, unassailable speed along the coast. You can either build this this huge lead, or you can build rest into the team, which means you're pretty much invincible. If, if you're faster, and you have position, and you have more rest, that's kind of checkmate. He's rested his 12 dogs several times since Unilcleat, including in the checkpoints of Shaktulik, Koyuk, and Elam. The Seward Musher says this generous rest is what he wants more so than any gap in front of his chasers. As much as I can get away with and still have a comfortable lead, pretty much, I would rest them more if I had more time. There's no sense in, you only have to win by a minute, I guess. If he preserves at least that minute, CV would become a three-time Iditarod champion on Tuesday. It's been a long span of time, though. <laughs> it takes me a long time to win three. And obviously it's not in the bag, we got to do some things right, and there's plenty of ways to mess it up, so I'm not planning on doing any of those, but bad luck, things can happen, it's not for sure, but yeah, obviously we're in, in the best position. Two records could be eclipsed with a CV victory. 
the overall race speed record set last year by his son Dallas at 8 days, 11 hours, and 20 minutes. Mitch Seavey could also become the oldest musher to win the race at 57 years old, this time breaking the record that he set in 2013 as a 53-year-old winner. Nicholas Petit and Dallas Seavey are battling for second place, as well as to be positioned to take advantage of any mistake that Mitch Seavey makes on the run into Nome. Petit pushed from Shack Tulik North and across the sea ice to Koyuk in a big run, ultimately finding his team within 13 minutes of Dallas Seavey after they leapfrog one another and arrived in White Mountain. The younger Seavey is now thinking more about the young racers near him than his father. That's a mental shift that happened around Utilically. And had I made that adjustment earlier, or had I never tried to race my dad, I would have been in a much better position here, I think. Um, because I did have to push a little bit hard, and took a little bit of speed off him, so then I had to give some extra rest back to get that speed back. Still, CV says that he had to at least try racing his dad. Norwegian Jor Olsum lurks behind the top three, while Jesse Royer and Wade Mars battled Monday for the fifth position. Still running with a full string of 16 dogs, Royer said in Koyuk that pressure is coming from all sides. I don't know what kind of shape their teams are in. They're going to keep pushing to try to stay in front of me, and I'm going to keep pushing to try to catch them. Mitch Seavey is eligible to leave the White Mountain checkpoint as of 7.36 Tuesday morning. A finish is expected in Nome Tuesday afternoon. For KNOM News, I'm Ben Matheson in White Mountain. All right, that's just crazy. And... I'm not referring to Mitch being able to leave White Mountain before this episode is done, potentially setting a couple records in the process of his run to Nome. I'm talking about Jesse Royer bringing 16 dogs, her entire team, into White Mountain. Ben talked with her a bit more about this while she was back in Koyuk. Uh, let's hear it. It means I have a lot more chores. It means I get no sleep because my chores take me twice as long. Um, 16 dogs doesn't necessarily mean any more speed. Like, I might not be going any faster with 16 than Yor is with 8, honestly. And it, it means that he's going to have to work harder up the hills, but he's more of an athlete than I am. I can't run as well up the hills as he can. So he'll make up the difference on the hills uh, himself. But um, it does mean I have options. Um, Did you envision having this many dogs at this stage in the race when you're gearing up for 2017 at I don't think anybody envisions having this many dogs this late in the race, especially not when you're pushing at the top like this. Um, I think it's, I don't know that it's unheard of, but it just does not happen very often, and it probably won't ever happen to me again. You know, it's just a, one of those teams that they're all veterans, they're all 1,000-mile finishers. Um, they're just in a groove, and everybody's just running about the same, and I don't really have anybody I need to drop right now. Um, they're all they're all good, tough dogs. Mushers who have been competing in the Iditarod for a long time have they've developed relationships and traditions they revisit each time they run the race. And for Martin Boozer, when he gets into Unilicleet, that means a bag of muck tuck. I love eating the local food. And for about 15 years, a little girl would come and meet me. No matter what time of my arrival, her mom would drag her down, and now the girl, of course, is grown up and out of Unilicleet. But that tradition is now being held up by someone new who stood patiently by Boozer's dog team before handing him a Ziploc bag of whale skin and blubber. This little boy has come and brought me muktuk. Local boy, Wasuk Jones, brings me muktuk every time I show up. 
inconvenience in himself and his family to to make sure I have some some of the most delicious muktuk around. So that's just always heartwarming when he when he shows up and brings me that. I always gobble it down right away. As Boozer watered his dogs, he chatted with Clarence Tawarek, who has come down to say hi to the mushers every year since the 1980s. Uh, Boozer pointed up to some wind turbines on a hill and asked Tawarek a question. How come none of your windmills are turning? There's no wind up there. It's uh, dead calm, pretty much. Up there? It was blowing where I came from. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That perplexed me when I came around the corner. It's a um, finicky wind around here. Yeah? That means there's no wind in Shaktulik, that's what it is. Ooh, I, like <laughs> it. I, better, I better go. <laughs> As Boozer attended to his dogs, Tawarik explained that when mushers are at the front of the pack, they don't have a lot of time or energy for talking to folks. At least you got a sense of humor at this point in time. Those guys in the top five to ten, they're all business, so. It's not been a great race for Boozer this year. His dogs have been persistently sick, which at one point made him doubt whether or not he'd be able to finish the race. Uh, that's never occurred. In nearly four decades of mushing, Boozer has not scratched in a single Iditarod. But luckily, the worst seems to be over, and he said the dogs look finally ready to run. All we need to do is get it done. Just get to know and get this over with. That's all I need. Get another one in the books and regroup. If he does finish, this will be Boozer's 34th full Iditarod. That is a lot of, that's, that's a lot of Iditarod right there. Also this year, the Iditarod is honoring a late longtime race volunteer in Caltag with the Herbie Nyuk Puck Spirit of the Iditarod Award. Austin Asmelka Sr. helped bring the Iditarod through Caltag for decades. His son, Richard Burnham, is an Iditarod veteran and accepted the award surrounded by his family in the Caltag Community Hall on Sunday morning. Austin was always the one that, would, when I needed it, would come to me and say, Richard, we're going to go down to uh, Eagle Island. We need to break trail down there and put the trail in for the race is coming. And he would go down without question. And... He was involved with it in a lot of ways where he was in the background. You didn't always see him out in the front, but it, he was always there as the one that helped to make sure the race happened. The award is named for the late Shishmaref musher Herbie Nayakpak and is given to people who have made a major impact on the race. On a relatable note, when mushers began arriving in Ruby earlier in the race, there was one person who was conspicuously absent from the checkpoint. Emmett Peters, nicknamed the Yukon Fox, suffered a stroke in the course of the past year. He was the last ever rookie to win the Iditarod back in 1975. And then he volunteered at the Ruby Checkpoint, his hometown, for years after his racing career wound down. This year, the Checkpoint's judge is Kevin Psyche. He's finished the race twice, and the last time was in 1990. Psyche has volunteered for years, and he spoke with Zach this year about Peter's legacy on the Iditarod and just mushing in rural Alaska. He's back uh, home, but again, he's in a wheelchair, so as far as getting around mobility, you know, I'm sure he realizes what's going on right now, and it's a big thing of him. A big thing for him as far as being part of Iditarod history was huge, you know. He was the one that pioneered running 24-7, round the clock and everything. And I believe 
he shaved over five days off the previous time. So, you know, as far as the evolution of the race, he's been a main contributor to how they're running the race these days, you know. Unfortunately, you know, he's not going to be able to be here down at the checkpoint physically, but in spirit, I'm sure he's living the dream and doing what, what, what you know, a guy needs to do. But, yeah, a lot of history, dog mushing here in Ruby, no doubt about it. Does it seem like a lot of the, the folks from the, that first kind of strong generation that brought mushing back are kind of going? I mean, it was just two years ago that George Atla passed and, and his kind of legacy on sprint racing you and know, stuff. You know, you close the chapter in a book and you open up a new one. And yeah, a lot of the original pioneers are getting old like we all are. And they're kind of spectators now. Um, new group coming up here. Wade Mars being the first one in, you know, could very well be the start of a new phase of the race, you know. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Personally, we need a new champion just for the excitement and just to get everything kind of everybody jazzed up you know i know the cv dynasty is something that most people think is something that's almost uh unconquerable but um if we get a new champion this year we'll give a lot of the people that are trying to hit that number one spot a little bit of hope that as long as they keep working as hard as they are anything's a possibility it's a dog race right i'm sure this isn't the first dog race you guys have covered so you know what a dog race is all about yeah do you, do you think that um mushing will come back to the bush as strongly as it was uh, back in the 70s and 80s when the majority of racers were really coming from a lot you of know, the... that's a, that's our hope you know when i was running dogs and i was participating in the race they were teams up and down the river mcgrath everywhere it was a really strong but you know the whole economic challenge of these guys putting a competitive team together and trying to field uh, a chance at, at being successful. It's getting more and more challenging, you know. We have some good young native mushers, you know, Richie Deal, Pete Kaiser, Mike Williams Jr. isn't in the race this year, but he's another one, you know. So that's our hope, you know. And, you know, John Baker, again, winning the race, you know, a few years back, it gives these native mushers uh, hope and dream that if they work hard enough at it, eventually it might pay off for them, you know. So keeping with the theme of mushing history and the development of the sport in the state, the Alaskan Huskies running in today's Iditarod bear very little resemblance to the bulky sled dogs people in Alaska used to rely on year-round. As breeding programs have refined genetic lines to create dogs designed to excel at the 1,000-mile wintertime race, the cost of specialization has been versatility. Decades ago, in the early to mid-20th century, sled dogs might run in races, but they were also a source of labor. They helped haul ice for water, wood for fire, and game after a hunt. Benedict Jones was born in 1933 at a fish camp upriver from Kayakuk, where he's lived for most of his life. His neighbor, a few miles down the road, George Atla, better known as the Huslia Hustler, was born just a few days later. Zach spoke with Jones at the checkpoint in Kayakuk about how sled dogs were in the old days. My name is Benedict Jones. I'm from Kayakuk. I was born in the fish camp. When I was six years old, my dad started having me drive dogs with the Jeep and my dad would be walking ahead with dogs or snowshoes, and I'd be following them. And then we start training our dogs in the fall, in October, right after lakes and freeze up. 
But in the meantime, in the summertime, my dad used to turn them loose, take them across the river. It's a mile wide from here over to the other side. They'd make the dogs swim all the way across just to keep them in shape. But he'd do that once a week. And what he does too is when he tied them in the summertime, he put them on a gravel area or little rocks area. That's the way it's to keep their paws in shape all the time, you know, when they're with that rocks that keep their paws nice and tough. And then we start training from October till May, first of May. But those days, family of four or something like that, you'd have average about eight or nine dogs to a team. Every day from October till May, the dogs would be working every day, whether it's five miles or 20 miles. In 1950, my grandma and I, we left our camp, it's about 85 miles from here, and we had 10 beaver carcasses, weighs about 400 pounds, and two sleds with the jeep pool and race sleigh. When we started down, the first time we hooked up them, 14 dogs together, and we left the camp at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. For 70 miles, we never say nothing, 75 miles, we never say a word. And my, I tell my grandma, I said, Grandma, quit holding the brake. And the dogs, my leaders, she looked back at me, and, and the first time we say a word, you know, after 75 miles. And she'd look at me and say, hop, 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 hop. And dogs just start galloping at about 16 miles an hour. And we came here 2.30 in the afternoon. People saw us coming. They all start clapping like that. And the dogs just start barking and everything took off up the bank. They were just ha happy, hollering and barking, just like they only went about two miles. And that's how good a shape we had our dogs in. They were a lot tougher than these Iditarod dogs because they travel every day. And those days we had wooden runners and they were a lot harder pulling than these nowadays sled. So they were in good shape all the time. And in the summer, with the boats before there were outboard motors, how would the how would the dogs be with the boats? Uh, in the summertime, before the outboard motors came out, uh, one summer, my dad and I, we about ten miles down, he wanted to bring a dry fish bundle of fish, summer chum. So he he hooked up the dogs and we put about fifteen bales of fish in a, what we call a rowboat and attached a tow line to the dogs, and the dogs were in the harness. When was the last dog team in Kayakuk? When was the last time somebody had a dog team? I had my last dog team about three years ago, but there were sprint dogs. After I retired in 1990, they had spring carnival here every year. So all the teams from different villages come compete against each other. I competed. Ruby, Galena, Kaikuk, Narado, Caltech, and Huslia. 
sprint race. Uh, starting out, I probably come in second and third, but later on, my dogs got tougher and made first place every village except Galena. There were too much competition from Fairbanks teams. And I beat George Atla twice in a sprint race. Are you are you cheering for anyone this year to win? No, no, not really. <laughs> yeah. Now let's take a couple of listener questions sort of in the same vein. Uh, this one is on the topic of Iditarod history and how close race finishes can be. Hey guys, this is Mark Bates from sunny Santa Barbara, California. Thanks for creating this great podcast for those of us who wish to follow this exciting event. As we enter the second half of the race, I have a two-part question. One, what is the closest finish in Iditarod history? And two, in the event of two mushers entering side-by-side to the Burled Arch in Nome, what determines the first musher to finish? Is it the lead dog, the sled, or some other marker? Thanks again for this great podcast. So Ben wanted to take this one, and here he is with a little bit of a history lesson for us. The closest Iditarod finish was in 1978 between Rick Swenson and Dick Mackey, that is, the father of four-time champion Lance Mackey, the two had camped together on the trail, as they tended to do in some of those early races. Swenson and Mackey had marched through a coastal blizzard. They traveled together, and Swenson led as they neared Nome. When they got to Front Street for the final couple hundred yards, there was evidently no successful truce negotiation, and they sprinted to the finish, running beside their sleds. Maybe four feet behind Mackey. Here comes Dick Mackey, Rick Swenson. They're all running in. They look tired. The dogs look awfully good. They Mackey stopped running when his lead dog crossed the finish line. He apparently tried to fall onto his sled bag, but he missed and bounced off onto the frozen ground. The crowd was worried that he had had a heart attack. Swenson, meanwhile, rushed to bring his sled across the finish line. The race judge determined that it's the nose of the dog that matters, making this a sled dog race and not a dog sled race. And now we know. Uh, Let's take one more listener question today. Here it is. Hi, this is Sarah from Seattle, and I'm hoping you guys will take my question and it's not too much of a novice question. I've been hearing a lot this race about how Dallas CV in particular has been resting his dogs as part of the strategy by towing them in the box on his sled. And I had heard about dogs being towed in trailers, and of course this year that's not possible, but on sleds, I've always assumed that was kind of a, a dealing with a problem, an injured dog or a sick dog that you were taking care of on the trail and were going to drop at the next checkpoint. Um, but it's sounding like possibly this is a strategy, and I'm wondering if this is a strategy that multiple mushers use, and if so, if it's something that's new and developing, or if this has always been a part of the race. Hi, Sarah. This is a really great question, especially for this year's race. Dog rotation this year is proving to be a pretty big thing. Uh, We're not only talking about it a lot, but it's reflected in the sleds that the top mushers, uh, Dallas and Mitch Seavey most notably, they redesigned their sleds so that instead of trailers, they could carry dogs. So essentially saying, hey, we don't care how we're going to do it, but we just want to keep doing it when it comes to dog rotation. This is something that not everyone is into, and people actually have pretty strong, divided feelings about Wade Mars is right up there with the CVs, and he says he's not interested in rotating dogs. He wants a team that, you know, all of them can make it to Nome with 1,000 miles on their leg, not 800, not 600. And one of the areas where dog rotation as a strategy becomes very contentious is with the issues of trailers. One of the concerns from a lot of members of the Iditarod board and people in the mushing community was that 
trailers were making it normal to rotate dogs in and out, essentially normalizing it as part of the strategy. And with top mushers, that can be done safely and effectively. But with a lot newer mushers and people just coming in, there was some concern that they weren't going to do it as safely. So instances where sleds had become detached and people hadn't known about it or there were collisions, some people thought that was going to increase if you made it really normal for, for rotating dogs through trailers uh, was to become the norm. So that was part of the reason why the trailer ban went through. And implicit in that is a little bit of a critique or some umbrage with dog rotation as part of a long distance race strategy. I don't know when it started. I don't know who started it, but it's definitely becoming much more of a staple for some top mushers while others have no interest in participating. You're right in your question that it used to be that just an injured dog or one that needed a little break would get carried in the sled. But now it's really becoming a thing where you'll keep less dogs on the line and, you know, as many as four, I think even five at one point, dogs in a sled to keep them fresh, keep miles off their legs so that you can save them for later. So great question. It is very much a new and emerging part of this race, one that some people don't want to see continue. Those questions did come from a couple of our listeners uh, the race is starting to come to a close here uh, in the next day or so, but uh, we do have a couple episodes left. And if you do have a question about the race, please send it our way. You can email them to iditarod at alaskapublic.org. And better yet, record yourself on a smartphone and email us. You can use a voice recorder or memo app. Almost all phones have these. Introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, and ask away. That is all we have for you today. Thanks again to Zachariah Hughes with Alaska Public Media and to KNOM Radio's Ben Matheson. We are in the midst of our daily episodes, so if you like what you hear, you can tune in every day during the race. To make that a little bit easier, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or listen on alaskapublic.org. Our theme music is by the band Sassafras, and I'm Josh Edge. Goodbye. I felt like I was going to win it for a long time. And I would be disappointed, terribly disappointed, if I didn't. In fact, I expect to. <laughs>